All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode two of the Ready Ready podcast. I am your host, George Croft. So we are going to jump right into it here. Last week, I told you guys that I was doing a book review on a book called You Can Farm by Joel Salatin. And so we're going to go into that a little bit. We're actually, this episode is not going to focus as much on the book review as I had kind of imagined before, because this turned out not to be the type of book that I sort of had thought it would be. It's a very good book, and it's a very, like, it's a wealth of knowledge, if you wanted to sound smart talking about it. Uh, Yeah, it's got, like... This guy, okay, I'll start at the beginning here. This guy, Joel Salatin, the author of this book, is a, uh, he's a farmer, obviously, and he's sort of gotten the, like, process of farming down to the point where it's a, it's a well-oiled machine, and he's making money every year, and he's sort of, after he's been doing this his whole life now, he has poured as much of his information and knowledge as he can into this book on basically how to not just how to set your farm up, not like do this, do that, but like pitfalls, things to look out for sort of the ethic behind why to do it and kind of what it's actually going to require of you. If your goal is to live a, like a self-sustained farm life and also, you know, make money while you're doing it and be, you know, make, make the, the financial books actually work out, which is like kind of the number one thing you hear about, you know, farmers are always people in the ag industry. The margins are just so tight and it's so much work for so little return sometimes. But, uh, but in this book, Salison does a pretty good job of sort of lining out how that's sort of becoming a thing of the past and that like basically that the the market nowadays for homegrown stuff the price of that of those goods is such that if you get into the producing those goods the money's actually pretty good you you start losing when you get into like the mass agriculture and sort of just pumping things out for numbers instead of quality like that's where like that business is really having a struggle, which kind of rightfully so. I mean, that's all like, I mean, I, I say this on two hands. On the one hand, it's like I understand the, the need for a mechanism like, you know, like the massive agricultural sort of complex that we have in America because we have a lot of people to feed. And I don't know if it's actually possible for everybody in the country to like, to get their food from sources like this, like these sustainable sources. I don't know if if it's actually realistic to think that everybody could eat from things like this. I mean, I I mean, I hope that that, like I want to live in a world where that's the case, but I don't, I don't know if it is like it, we really, we really just don't know. But I think it's safe to say that like for every bit of self-sustained farming, we can foster, like it's not hurting anything. So the more you farm for yourself, the less you rely on that system that's cranking out food, but also pollution and kind of terrible animal rights practices and, and everything else. So as you're not hurting anything by not participating in that system. I just also understand that I, I'm not sure that we're actually 
capable of having everybody not participate in that system. That, that's sort of what I came away with this. Like, Salatin seems to argue that you can, but I'm not. I'm. I remain unconvinced. We'll, we'll put it that way. But uh, but anyway, but but like so so kind of to go through some of the sections in the book here. Actually, um, I'll kind of I'll read you guys the sort of uh, quick excerpt here. Oh, maybe I lost it. Who knows? Uh, anyway, yeah. So we'll go through some of the sections here. And uh, oh, here we go. All right. <clears throat> so the quick kind of the the quick paperback, you know, read the back of the book entry to the book here. Uh, is as follows. It says, Have you ever desired deep within your soul to make a comfortable full-time living from a farming enterprise? Too often, people dare not to even vocalize this desire because it seems absurd. It's like thinking the unthinkable. After all, the farm population is dwindling. It takes too much capital to start. The pay is low. The working conditions are dusty, smelly, and noisy. Not the place to raise a family. This is all true and more for most farmers, but for farm entrepreneurs, the opportunities for a farm family business have never been greater. The aging farm population is creating cavernous niches, begging to be filled by creative visionaries who will go in dynamic new directions. As the industrial agriculture complex crumbles and our culture clamors for clean food, the countryside beckons anew with profitable farming opportunities. While this book can be helpful to all farmers, it targets the wannabes, the folks who actually entertain the notions of living, loving, and learning on a piece of land. Anyone willing to dance with such a dream should be able to assess its assets and liabilities, its fantasies and realities. It is, really pos- is it really possible for me? Is the burning question this book addresses. And uh, like I said, this it's it's not like theoretical in this book either. He's not like doing too much just postulating on like, you know, you can do it. It's, it's very like, if you're going to do it, think about X, Y, and Z and take it very seriously. It is possible. It is definitely possible to do, but it is not easy and it is not to be taken lightly is sort of, sort of what I came away with. Excuse me. So, I mean, he goes into lots, lots of stuff. Like there's, I think there's like 30 something chapters in here. Um, But it's basically all in the vein of do only what you have to and, you know, find as, like find as many uses for the things that you have as possible. So um, let's see here. It says, so it's, yeah, so he's got like, like the first section is like talking about like, sur- it's called surveying your situation. So he's going over like, what resources do you have access to now? And like the, he's basically saying like the farm th- idea works on any scale. So if you can make money in a small backyard garden, it's the same, it's the same principle like with a few chickens in a backyard garden if you can make money doing that and you're and you're disciplined enough to keep that going then as you scale up it keeps making sense if you try to jump like if you jump right in getting into a bunch of debt you're probably it's probably not going to work out for you is is kind of what i what i gather from this but if you start small and then you just scale up 
it actually looks like there's some pretty decent money. He goes into like real detail about like how much money he invests in a certain thing on a given year and how much it turns around and makes. And it's not like, it's not crazy money, but it's, I mean, he's money ahead every year. So, so that's something to think about. Um, and he's, and he's got another book too. He's got another, uh, well, he's got, he's got a bunch of other books, but the one that I'm thinking about getting into next is about, um, raising what it's called. It's called pastured poultry, I think. And, uh, it's about sort of the business model for raising chickens and how you can make money on them without having like a big nasty impact on the, on the, my actually growing up, my mom had like 2000 chickens at one point, And that was like, we got a lot of eggs out of the deal, but like, I have no interest in doing that, that level of, of chicken farming. That's just like too much. There is such a thing as too many chickens and 2000 definitely, <laughs> definitely qualifies. So, but anyway, but yeah, so, but this guy does go into like the models that you can use for that sort of thing. Um, he goes into like ethics too, like not just like how to do it, but like why to do it. And he talks about sort of the farming community and how, while people are friendly, it's not like you can't just go strutting in there and, and acting like, you know, things cause you read Joel Salatin's book because your neighbors are going to hate you. And that's, and that's not, not part of the recipe for success. Um, but yeah, and then he also goes into like, I mean, he spends a lot of time talking about soil fertility. This guy's got all kinds of theories on, on soil, you know, like how to, how you can basically screw He seems to be like, I, I said last episode, I did some, I did a little bit of a shallow dive into soil health and stuff. And I, I had found a couple of different things in the literature last week that said, that you can't act like the, that using synthetic fertilizers is actually not like, you're not going to kill your soil doing that because the organisms can't tell the difference between synthetic nitrogen and natural nitrogen. But Salatin seems to be of the school of thought that it does like you will damage your soils using fertilizers and that they will never produce the same without fertilizer once you use it. And that using, natural like he uses i mean but he fertilizes with chicken manure and cow manure and all this but he just does it like in a very targeted way and he's not just pumping chemicals to stuff it's all like pretty natural i guess but um but he has like he goes he speaks about this stuff as if it's like set like the the debate on the science is out and this is the way to do it which is like uh kind of take it or leave it in that department. It's, it's if, if it is, as he says, sounds pretty solid, but, but it's not as if this guy is the final authority on all of this stuff. As far as the science goes, he does like, as far as like business model stuff goes, dude seems to have it down and I have no reason to, to be suspicious as to like whether or not it would actually work. So if you're like, if you're a hardcore ready to start a farm and you want to make money doing it and like quit your day job and have your wife quit her day job and like you guys just buckle down and decide that farming is the lifestyle, this is the book for you. If you're like casually thinking about getting into a little bit of farming, this isn't this isn't really what you're looking for. It's it's really like how to build a business plan, all the pitfalls to watch out for and 
sort of like the, like it's a hardcore, I want to get into farming and I'm going to make it work book. So, uh, but yeah, but it was, like I said, it's, it's a very good, and it's, and the, the audiobook is narrated by Salatin and that's like, I love that. Like that's, I, there's few things that I dislike more than audiobooks read by people that did not write them because they're just, I don't know. They're just so kind of cookie cutter in a way. And, but it's like, but then it's funny cause you hear these authors as they're reading their own work that they've obviously written months or years ago, they're coming across their old thoughts and they'll surprise themselves. So like in this, in this audiobook, Salatin, you know, you catch him like just laughing about stuff, something like he's chuckling, trying to read through his, like his, you know, I say attempts at comedy. They're, act, they're it's pretty funny sometimes. Like some of the stuff he says is actually like legitimately funny. And he's like, he's, he's obviously forgotten that that's how he read it. So he'll like, he catches himself off guard and he's kind of chuckling at his own jokes. And it's like, it's, it's funny. Like it, it makes it that much more like relatable and digestible instead of just some dude, you know, reading. Cause some of it is very technical. He's like, you know, he'll go down a list of each animal how much food he gave it, how much that cost, how long that took, what that did to the soil around it. Like he gets very, like some of it is very like listy. Like it's very, like he's reading down a list of like all these different steps that he took. But, but then a lot of it is him just pontificating on theories of, of uh, like ethics and like kind of just, just common. I say common sense. It's not common. Like what's the word I'm looking for here? It's like, like old school knowledge of just how things are based on his experience. And he's got a lot of science in there too, but anyway, it's a very good book and I highly recommend it to like to anybody who's like really considering like, like farming as a business model, not just as like a, yeah, I'd like to raise a few of my own chickens and do my own eggs kind of thing. So, which I do like, like, so like eventually I am very interested in heading in that direction. I just don't have the means to do it. Like, right this second, but I'm going to, I'm going to start looking into kind of the first step. Like, like I said, the, the book sort of stresses, if you can make it work on a small scale, you can make it work on a big scale. So that's, that's sort of where my brain is heading. That's the direction that we're going in. <clears throat> Excuse me. But, uh, yeah, that's, that's pretty much, I think all we're going to go into as far as that book goes. Again, that's, you can farm the entrepreneur's guide to start and succeed in a farm enterprise by Joel Salatin. And, uh, yeah, that, like I said, it's a good book. Check it out. So moving on from our book review, which I've never done a book review before. And I know that was a little bit slipshoddy, but, uh, and I don't know if I'll make those a regular thing. It would kind of depend on the book, I guess. But, uh, but anyway, so moving on here. Um, so this, episode I thought would be fun not not necessarily fun but like it would be fitting since this is the ready ready podcast and apparently September is like national readiness month which I don't know if it's been that way forever or if it's just like they decided oh wow like everything's on fire you should be ready we'll create national readiness month or whatever like that that seems to be the vibe that I'm getting, but who knows, maybe it's a long honored tradition from the department of agriculture or whatever the hell is, is doing this. So, 
but I got to thinking like with all these, we've got all these wildfires going on. There's earthquakes and there's hurricanes and just, just straight up wrath of an angry God type stuff going on all over the country. So, (laughs) which is, uh, concerning obviously, but, uh, it sort of brought about this thought of like, what do you do if like, not just like, like I said, like the, the general attitude of the podcast here is to like sort of just live in a way where this stuff impacts you the least. But in this case, we're talking about what happens if it's, you're dealing with it now, like this, this kind of like, there's a disaster happening. What do you do and how can you be more ready, uh, you know, for yourself and your family? So it's sort of like, it sort of bakes down to short term readiness here. And, uh, oh, National Preparedness Month, not Readiness Month. Excuse me. Excuse me. Slip up there. Um, but because the other thing I thought about, too, is like, so, okay, so everybody, like, you hear, like, the radio ads and stuff. They're like, have a plan. Have a, you know, have your roadside, you know, disaster kit or whatever. And it's like, for whatever reason, at least for me, and I'm like everybody else, like, I don't have, like, like, it's not like I'm sitting over here with like this awesome look at my preparedness plan and all the tools that I have and look at my preparedness kit and you should all be like me. That's like, that's not what we're doing here. I'm just like everybody else. Like I'm, I'm really probably stupidly underprepared for the event of some kind of natural disaster. And it's, it's, this is good for me to even just go through and think about, I mean, I've thought about some of this stuff. Like I've, I've definitely like, it's not like this stuff has not ever been thought about, but, uh, but I'm definitely not as good about it as I should be, nor I think is the majority of people. Um, but, but I also kind of thought about like, so I had sort of like a weird experience just like yesterday. So I live in an apartment right now and I've only lived here for four months or so. And so I was making, I think I was, yeah, it was dinner time and I had something like I've got kids, so I'm in the middle of making dinner. I put some oil in a pan, and I'm getting ready to make stuff. My Something happened, like somebody screamed or something outside, and I had to go, like, running out to, you know, make sure kids were sharing toys properly or something. But then your brain goes, uh-oh, you, like, you had already turned that stove on, so I wheeled back around, ran inside, and while it was not on fire, the pan was, like, getting pretty smoking hot, like, way more than I intended it to. And it sort of sent my brain down this rabbit hole of like, oh man, like what if I had like not run inside when I did? And what if there was like a fire going on in here? Like what would I, what would I have done? And like, I realized that I had spent like no energy thinking about like what to do. And like, and in that quick moment, I was like, oh, like the sinks right there. Like I was thinking about like how I would get water on it, but then it's like, it's a grease fire thing. So you don't want to do that. And it, it sort of just like woke me up to this, like, because I hadn't actually taken the time to think about this in that moment, I didn't think about the fact that there's a fire extinguisher bolted to the outside of my building. Like it's right outside my front door. But because I hadn't actually taken the time to think, what would you do if I didn't think about that fire extinguisher? I was thinking about everything else. I was thinking about the fact that I don't have one under my like sink and that like the best I could have done is thrown water from the sink onto that fire, which, which in that case, like we're not talking like a deep fryer caught on fire or something like water would have definitely done the job in that case, but that's not like a good thing to rely on. And anyway, so I felt very stupid and I felt very like 
caught off guard and you know it kind of that's the stuff that i think like you don't think about when you hear like oh have a plan or have a this have a that it's like you're like yeah 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 i know how to like you know like i'm not you think to yourself i'm not stupid like you know but when you're like adrenaline's pumping and you're like kind of panicking a little bit it you're you realize that like the way you react to stuff is not necessarily the same as you could like sit down calmly and, and think out a plan. That's the whole point of like running this stuff in advance. So, so I sort of like, like I, I equate that with like weapons training stuff. Right. So like, so like when you're, when you're practicing and you're, you know, training yourself around firearms, any other type of weaponry stuff, it's like you're doing that for muscle memory's sake. Like you're, you're like, for example, like magazine changes with, your pistol right like the idea is that the more you do that the more your hands have to go through that motion of loading a new magazine into your pistol like it sounds like a simple thing to do and it is slow but if you have to do it fast or under pressure you'd be amazed at like how difficult that actually is right to just like put one thing into another like it it sounds so simple but it's like but if you if you get around people who have like never tried this before if you hand someone like like people that are just kind of casually, you know, comfortable with firearms and you like put pressure on it, say quick, quick, change your magazine. And like, and they're like the first time they're running through a drill, they look so dumb. And they like, I know I did like, you just like you, your hands just don't know where to go. They've, your brain has never gone down that path before with a little bit of extra pressure. And you're just, your your hands are just not doing what you want them to do until you get it right. Slow a bunch of times and speed up and go fast and speed up and go faster. Like until you do that to your brain, you're, you just have no idea what you're doing. It's like playing an instrument that you've never picked up before. Like you've never, you haven't carved that pathway into your brain. Your hands don't know what to do. And so it's like, It's like that when like, you know, there's almost a fire in my kitchen. I haven't actually gone through like, what would I do in the case of this? And it's like, you think in all the wrong directions when it's like, there is a very, like when you're calm, you can think about it. There's a fire extinguisher right there. You just walk out the front of the house, grab it, go back in, do your thing. Like, but if you've never taken the time to do that, you have no muscle memory in that department. Like your brain is trying to figure it all out on the fly. And the odds of you screwing something up are way higher. Now that is all a very long winded sort of explanation for why I kind of wanted to talk about like actually making preparedness plans and stuff because there's, I mean like the idea of having to like flee your house is actually like, there's way more that goes into that than comes to mind easily. Like obviously like, I don't know. Like you think about having to like, what you would grab if you had like five minutes or 10 minutes to get out of your house or something. And like, you kind of, you can make those lists and then having like a preparedness backpack and you got like a medical kit and flashlights and all that stuff. That's all pretty, like that's all pretty standard stuff. And I feel like there, this podcast is not going to like, I'm not going to tell you bring a flashlight and have you be like, Oh, I never thought of that before. So I'm going to try to stick like, so I'm going to kind of go over the list here on this, uh, ready.gov site where they tell, kind of go through like plan making steps. And there's, there's just, there's some of this stuff that like, that doesn't immediately jump to mind. And that's the stuff I kind of want to focus on. So, um, 
let's see here. So like, so it starts out with like, how are you even going to find out? Like, how, how do you receive emergency alerts? Most of us, that's our cell phone. Like, like the, the time that we live in, like the technology exists, they just send out an alert to everybody and 90% of the people get it. And if, if you didn't get it, your neighbor got it and everybody is aware of what's going on. Um, but something like, so you think to yourself like, all right, I'm going to get out of the house. Well then what? So like, so this talks about like, what's your evacuation route? So that's like, Oh, like, okay. What road would you pick and why? So I, when I got to think about that, it kind of would depend on the natural disaster causing you to leave your house because like it would, it would all depend on like, is there a fire? If so, what direction is the road that you had intended on taking even available as a, as like an egress route. But it's like, but it's good to think about. And it's also like, like, luckily, like, I live in Flagstaff, so there's, like, there's plenty of roads in and out of this town, lots of major highways. Like, getting out of this town in the event of a natural disaster is, like, relative, like, there's options. Not to say that it's easy, but, like, but there are options. But, uh, but it's good to think about, like, what direction would you go and why? Um, and then the other thing, too, is, like, and I did this at our old, when I, when I lived in California, I sort of came up with, like, this basic, evacuation plan for wildfires because as you know california burns all the time especially nowadays and uh like i remember kind of coming up with this plan and then i thought it was all hunky-dory and it's like i sort of casually brought it up to my wife and then she has all kinds of stuff that she thought about that i had did not think about so my whole plan that i was so like you know happy with myself over it's like you realize you 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 got to bring it like, you can't just do this by yourself. You got to talk to like everybody in your house and kind of have an idea of like, okay, if this happens, what are we going to do? Like, and I know that can be kind of an awkward conversation to have, but like, I mean, if your house burns down, um, you're going to feel really dumb being like, well, I thought about it, but I just didn't know how to bring it up. Just talk to your significant other. Like if you like, you guys got to get on the same page, there should be a plan and at least like a basic plan. Uh, and just kind of go over this stuff and make sure everybody's on the same page. Um, all right. And then this thing goes on to talk about like, do you need to update your kits? Like do you have any, like, especially if you had any stuff in your emergency kit, that's like perishable, which I don't suggest you do, but even the stuff that's not perishable, like you ought to check every once in a while. Like I used to have like this pack that had like, you know, the almost like MRE type snack bars and it, and they're like, like not designed to taste good at all. They're just meant to be calorie dense. And, uh, I remember I opened my pack one time. I, I think I like, I was trying to like rob a, like I needed a zip tie or something. I thought I could just rob it out of that emergency pack and, and use a zip tie for something else. Um, and I, I realized that like that backpack had been sitting in my car for months and you know, like you move stuff around, you go on trips, you throw your bag around in the back, making room for other stuff. And the packaging for one of those bars had gotten like, scuffed to the point where it was like open and the bar was like ruined basically it just stale from being you know sitting in my car for who knows how long and that was sort of like oh well good thing i figured that out like you wouldn't want to be like depending on like oh yeah we got you know we got some emergency bars in the car and then you open it up and it's there's a hole in it and the bar is basically like no good anymore so that's stuff to think about like even though you have a kit if you if you haven't looked at it in a while that's a good idea you know you got to keep up on your stuff and make sure, you know, everything's hunky dory and in good working order. Uh, so yeah. So yeah, have a bag, make sure all your stuff's up to date. 
and uh, have an idea of where you're going, be on the same page as your, you know, family members, spouses, anybody, any other adults that live in your house. Think think about pets too. That's the other one that people kind of often forget about. Is like, what are you gonna do with? Do you have? Can you? Do you have enough room in your vehicles to like throw your pets in there? And it's probably a pretty good idea to make sure you have some pet food ready to go. Um, I know that's like, that's something that doesn't come up all the, like doesn't, it's not one of the first thing that jumps to your mind, but yeah, like have, if you had to leave your house, you got to bring some pet food for your, for your little furry companions. Um, and that sort of brings us to, that's the end of our like kind of preparedness segment, but that sort of feeds right into our, uh, hot tip for this week or our quick tip, life hack, whatever you want to call it. And, uh, this week's quick tip comes from the Pinewood fire department here in Munns park, Arizona, <laughs> which is basically just a tiny little fire department that answered the phone. And I was like, Hey, what would you guys have? Like, if you're gonna have a quick tip for people for things that, you know, you see happen that aren't commonly thought about what's like, what's a quick tip for fire preparedness. And, Almost immediately, the nice lady at the fire department said, oh, yeah, documents. Like, when people are leaving their houses, apparently, like, having documents that are hard to replace in a spot that's easy for you to just grab and go, even if it's, like, if it's sitting in a safe normally, have it all in one thing that you could just grab out of that safe and leave with. Because, like, when people's lives get upended by fires the real hard, like uh, an, an additionally stressful thing is then having to go through and you realize all the stuff that you need to start your life back over. And a lot of that paperwork stuff is like, it's one thing if you got your social security card, your birth certificate, all that stuff in your hand when you leave. Awesome. Then when you're trying to rebuild your life or deal with insurance claims and stuff, you've got all that stuff. But if all of that burns up in a fire, now you're not only having to try to like, like you've got a huge hurdle to get over before you can even start talking about insurance claims and kind of rebuilding your life. Like, like if you let all your important documents burn up, you're adding weeks more stress onto the process of getting back to normal. So just have all that stuff ready to go in one spot where you know where it is. You've already thought this out. What documents would you need in the event of everything burning down basically and have it all ready to go. So you can just throw your safe open, grab it, get out of the house. Um, so it was that, and she said, so yeah, so documents and medications. So people don't always, like, think about, like, when you're, you're running out of your house, you're not thinking about what's to happen in the next coming days. You're thinking about how do I not die right this second, and I guess people often forget, like, important medications that they end up losing in a fire, and then they're having to scramble to try to, like, get prescriptions refilled. And if it's even possible, like, like a couple of years ago when the town of paradise burned down, it's like the whole town burned down. It's like, even if you could find somewhere to like find another pharmacy, it's like, that's a whole nother hoop to jump through. It's not like your pharmacy that you normally work with is guaranteed to be there. Um, so just, yeah, just make sure you got your like medications in a place where you can like grab them and go. Even if that means like, like just keeping an empty, like, spit kit bag in your bathroom knowing, okay, if I have to leave, run in here, fill this with all my medications that I need. Like, so cause that, so those, those are the two things straight from the mouth of firefighters that people often forget and don't think about when they're like having to leave. Those are the two big things that they see apparently. So that's our, our hot tip for the week. Hot tip, haha, <laughs> fires and such. 
Anyway, you guys are going to have to deal with dad jokes as this podcast continues. So that brings us to our next segment, which is God Bless America News. And in keeping with our fire and disaster theme for, uh, for this episode, I found this really cool article. Um, and I'm actually like, I'm pretty interested in like fire ecology and how all that stuff works in the natural world. And I've got, I've got, you know, I've got a associate's degree in natural resources. So I've taken a few classes on this kind of thing. I'm not, I am by no means an expert and I like to people that know what they're talking about. I probably sound like a knuckle dragging idiot, but that's fine. Uh, so this article that I found, uh, comes from today.com and says 2000 year old redwoods survive wildfire in California's oldest state park. Uh, and this is talking about the Big Basin Redwood State Park. Now, the reason this was a concern to begin with is because the intensity of wildfire that we're currently dealing with is is not like your run-of-the-mill wildfires. Now, I say run-of-the-mill. It's actually super complicated. And actually, what's funny is that your opinions on wildfires can quickly slip into the political realm of things because it's very hard to have like a nuanced, you know, opinion about this sort of stuff these days. Some people want you to believe it's all, you know, climate change. Some people want you to believe it's all mismanagement when really it's just a disastrous complimentary blend of the two because it is true. Okay. So basically just a quick go over of like why fire is a good thing, for, you know, in history is that so if you can imagine like as a forest is growing up fires come through occasionally naturally from lightning strikes and whatever else and and uh those fires come through and they burn up whatever's on the ground and they burn up like trees that might be like less healthy even the fire stress will kill a less healthy tree right and what that does is the stuff that's strong enough to survive survives and grows you know grows into maturity well, with those fires coming through pretty often, they never get really intense. So, like, like in in the case of, like, the foothills of the Sierras, which is where I am from, there's, like, that forest is supposed to be fire adapted to, like, every five, six years. So, theoretically, like, throughout history, some level of fire came through every five, six years and burned up you know, the, the undergrowth and whatever was on all the deadfall stuff on the ground, it sort of cleans everything out. But because it already came through five years ago, there's not a ton of like ladder, what's called ladder fuels. It's where like, you imagine like grasses and shrubs on the ground burning, right? Well, there's a gap between that fire fuel and that of the trees where the canopy starts, you know, several feet higher. So it's possible for a fire to come through the, the floor of the forest without getting into the canopy. If there's too much stuff on the ground and too many like smaller shrubs that have been allowed to grow up or, or, or like young trees, the fire starts in the shrubs, gets into those smaller bushes and stuff, and then climbs into the canopy. And that's when you get just wild things burning out of control. Also, uh, okay, so, so imagine now we've been stopping wildfires for the past, you know, hundred years basically there's a there's a huge fire in i think 1918 that sort of sparked the forest services like 
war on fires. Like it's sort of like, you know, if you see a fire, put it out that coupled with like humans moving into the forest, our population density is growing. Just about any fire is a threat to like, you know, human life or property. So, so we've been, we've had like a pretty much total like put out policy on fires for the last several decades in the last, like probably in the last 20 years, we've started to really have a turnaround on that. And we're starting to use fire as a preventative measure, but we're already so, so far behind the curve. This stuff is bound to happen. So, so like in the case of California, you have that forest that I was talking about in history has been fire adapted for about every five, six, five or six years. And the forest density was way lower than it used to be. So like, if you look, it's actually really cool. If you find like old pictures and old diary entries and stuff from people that were in that part of California in like the early 1900s, late 1800s, they talk about being able to ride your horse at a full gallop through the woods and not hit trees. Like you could, you could do that, you know, and just based on pictures and other, you know, stuff like that, they've basically figured out that the forest density back then was roughly 50 trees per acre. Now, if you, Imagine that these are also 50 trees per acre that are big enough to survive these small fires that are coming through. So these 50 trees are not small. They're like big trees and they're spread out. And so, um, but now if you look at California, it's like the average is like 500 trees per acre. So there's 10 times the amount of trees per acre that the, that the ecosystem sort of developed having. And so we, so we, and it's not like, it's not just 50 or it's not just 500 trees. It's 500 like trees that have not been selected for health. They're not like, like, like dying trees are not, you know, cold every few years with like the natural fire cycle stuff's not getting cleaned up. So you get 500 trees per acre, all drinking the same amount of like, like you got 500 trees drawing water out of the ground where you used to have 50. And so what that does is it leaves all these smaller trees way more susceptible to drought. And then you get like a drought stress tree is just ready to be infested with like bark beetle and everything else. So that's sort of what happened in California is you had this massively overly dense forest from largely due to the fact that we haven't been suppressed or that we have been suppressing fires for the last several decades that forest now runs into a drought, which causes mass tree die off because the bark beetles just get right in there. And they like, there's swaths of the forest there that have like a 94% beetle kill rate, which is insane. It's like, if you get up on high Vista points in the Sierras, you can just see huge swaths of the mountainsides that are just Brown and dead. Then a fire happens and everything burns to the ground. Like not like a nice little healthy, crawling through the you know forest floor just burning off the deadfall from the last few years it's a raging moonscaping wildfire that the ecosystem has really not had to deal with maybe ever who knows but it's i mean the drought and the like the intensified weather temperatures and stuff it's like all of that is a factor but to just say like, oh, climate change caused it is sort of simplistic. Anyway, I'll get off my soapbox, but it's all, it's all part of this, you know, it's all a factor in this 
disastrous scenario that California now has. So that's why it was interesting when I saw this article talking about these 2,000-year-old redwoods that survived the wildfires because the redwoods are not any different. So like they're the, the fire cycle in a redwood forest might not be exactly the same as like an alpine forest. Uh, and I don't know as much about the redwoods, but the same fire suppression policies have been applied to those forests. And I know that I've lived in the redwoods and I know they're like, it's, it's the same as far as like density goes. Like you can't see far through the redwood forest. Like it's all, you know, socked in with small undergrowth and fires would just rip through there. No problem. Um, redwoods are actually way more water dense though. Like redwood trees hold a lot of water. So I'd imagine they're more resistant to fire, but anyway, so, but so this article is saying that even though we've had these really intense wildfires burn through the redwood forests, that these old trees that they were worried, like, cause this is a 2000 year old tree would would we would like the climate of today and the forest of today end up being the thing that does them in like you have these ancient trees and it would be a shame to see them all disappear in our lifetime but but anyway so uh so I'll, I'll read you guys some of the article here it says boulder creek california when a massive wildfire swept through california's oldest state park last week it was feared many trees in a grove of old growth redwoods some of them nearly 2,000 years old and among the tallest living things on earth may finally have succumbed. But an Associated Press reporter and photographer hiked the renowned Redwood Trail at Big Basin Redwood State Park on Monday and confirmed most of the ancient redwoods had withstood the blaze. Among the survivors is one dubbed Mother of the Forest. I love when they name trees. It's always... Yeah. This is such good news. I can't tell you how much that gives me peace of mind, said Laura McLedden conservation director for the Sempervians Fund, an environmental group dedicated to the protection of redwoods and their habitats. Redwood forests are meant to burn, she said, so reports earlier this week that the state park was gone, quote-unquote, were misleading. The historic park's headquarters is gone, as are many small buildings and campground infrastructure that went up in flames as the fire swept through the park about 45 miles south of San Francisco. But the forest is not gone, McLeodon said. It will regrow. Every old-growth redwood I've ever seen in Big Basin and other parks has fire scars on them. They've been through multiple fires, possibly worse than this. So that's something I found really interesting. Like, like I wonder what would lead her to think that they were even worse than this, because I would have thought that like the intensity of fires these days is probably the worst that this forest has ever seen but maybe that's i mean who's to say that's actually true um but yeah but i mean it's like they've obviously survived but like i said like these forests are fire adapted they expect fire every certain amount of years every forest is different but like but some plants have even like like they require fire to even like propagate like there's a like manzanita is a type of like it's like a shrub that grows in the sierras and it's actually fire adapted in that the manzanita wood burns hotter than all the other species of, of plants around it. And the manzanita seeds can withstand temperatures higher than all the other seeds around it. So when the manzanita bush burns, it is simultaneously killing off competition and like 
like that competition burning off adds nutrients to the soil that are that is good for the now new manzanita seeds that have just been dropped into this fresh new environment full of fire fiery ashy nutrients and those seeds can survive those temperatures but nothing else can like nothing else around it can so manzanita is like a perfect example of a plant that like is adapted like it it evolved with fire as like a a major player in its ability to propagate. Um, anyway, so like back to the article here. Uh, it says when forest fires, wind storms, and lightning hit redwood trees, those that don't topple can re-sprout. Mother of the forest, for example, used to be 329 feet tall, the tallest tree in the park. And after the top broke off in a storm, a new trunk sprouted where the old growth had been. Wow, I didn't know that. So apparently redwood trees can just keep on keeping on. That's cool. I had I did not know that was a thing. Trees that fall behind back yeah back there. Trees that f- that fall feed the forest floor and become nurse trees from which new redwoods grow. Forest critters from banana slugs to insects thrive under logs. On Monday, Stellar's Jays search for insects around the park's partially burned outdoor amphitheater and woodpeckers could be heard hammering on trees. Occasionally a thundering crash echoed through the valley as large branches of burning trees fell. When Big Basin opened in 1902, it marked the genesis of redwood conservation. The park now receives about 250,000 visitors a year from around the world, and millions have walked the Redwood Trail. The park only recently reopened after COVID-19-related closures, and now is closed because of the fire. The road is blocked by several large trees that fell across it, some waist-high and some still on fire. Ouch. While there is a great deal of work to be done rebuilding campgrounds, clearing trails, and managing damaged madrones, oaks, and firs, Big Basin will recover, McLeodon said. The forest, in some ways, is resetting, she said. State Parks District Superintendent Chris Sporher said he was pleased to know that the Redwoods had survived. He said an assessment team had only been able to check the building so far and that he hopes they can inspect the trees in the coming days. The reasons those trees are so old is because they are really resilient, he said. Ah, man, that's like, I love that stuff. So, so yeah, so it's like, so the argument, or not argument, but like the thing that I thought of there is twofold. It's like, first of all, it's, it's, I'm really glad that the old, you know, ancient trees are still around. And secondly, it's like when, when you hear these people talk about it, they are not as alarmist as the general attitude is about wildfires even though these wildfires that they're having in california are like they're definitely historical for like human recording and they're definitely intense and they're definitely aided by climate change and they're definitely exacerbated by poor management practices they're not like even now they're not necessarily the end of the world like we've just like we're sort of just if you think about like we've instead of having you know 50 small fires were having five massive fires like in the like in the same amount of time basically like we like we've basically just let this stuff build up and now we're paying for it and we're and it's getting exacerbated like i said by droughts and inclement weather and all that stuff so it's so it's uh it's a very complicated issue but i found this article and it made me happy because it's like man at least like because there's something depressing about that like ancient stuff that we see just get ruined 
that's never coming back. It's like, oh man, our generation is the one that did that. Like, ah, uh, that just makes you feel a little bit of, a little bit of shame, man. Like there's, there's cool ancient stuff and a lot of it is like taken for granted and it doesn't like it, you know, if that fire had been a little bit more intense or there had been, it had been paired with, you know, stronger winds or whatever, like you never know, maybe those 2000 year old trees wouldn't have made it. So I'm, I'm glad that they did. And that makes me happy. So that is the God bless America news and God bless the redwood forest. That's, that's pretty cool. I'm pretty, pretty happy to see that stuff. So, uh, so yeah, so that sort of, so we had our quick tip already. It was our, from our firefighters on what to grab. That was our God bless America news. And that wraps up this episode of the ready, ready podcast. And I want to thank you all very much for listening. Please subscribe to the podcast because it's extremely helpful and it's free for you to do. So why not? I appreciate it. And uh, yeah, stay tuned for next week. Thank you all very, very much.